Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website at robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to ask him about two vital areas of healthcare where the current rules of medicine seem out of date, technology and primary care. They are seemingly at opposite ends of the medical care spectrum, and yet they offer the two most effective ways to save human life. Robbie, let me begin by asking you why, in the 21st century, healthcare has been just about the only U.S. industry in which data analytics, robotics, and AI have failed to cut costs, increase access to products and services, and improve quality. Jeremy, this is a complex conundrum. For decades, medical costs have risen faster than inflation, with spending now above $4 trillion annually. For patients, Accessing medical care is both time-consuming and burdensome. Meanwhile, U.S. healthcare lags other wealthy nations in nearly all measures of quality, including life expectancy and childhood mortality. Modern technologies can help solve these problems, but here are a few reasons why they haven't. One is the technology itself. You know, take the electronic health record. This should be a powerful tool to provide comprehensive medical information whenever a patient needs medical care, whether in a doctor's office, an ER, an urgent care center, but it's not succeeding. The causes are twofold. First, these systems are cumbersome and clunky, and they sit literally between doctors and patients. Year after year, the medical economic survey of things ruining medicine for physicians rates EHR usability at or near the top of the list. The difficulty can be traced back decades in the past. Electronic health records were never intended to maximize clinical quality or facilitate medical care. Instead, the companies designed the applications to maximize billing. The second reason these EHRs aren't achieving their promise is that several manufacturers, including the largest medical record company, refuse to open their application programming interfaces. These are what's called APIs. If they did open their APIs, then third-party developers could design tools to easily extract information from disparate systems and combine them into a single application, thereby making all the patient's medical information available to any physician providing the care. And the same way that Apple allows third-party developers to design apps for an iPhone, Third-party programmers could take the current clunky computer systems and make them optimal for each specialty and then embed them in tablets and handheld devices for ease of use. Given all these opportunities, you may wonder why the APIs remain closed. And the reason, Jeremy, is if information could be shared across applications, regardless of which company sold the EHR system, then physicians and hospitals could decide 
to move from one company to another when there was lower cost and they wouldn't have to risk losing data or having to re-enter each patient's information. But that would diminish the manufacturer's market dominance and lower the prices that could be charged. Congress has talked about forcing manufacturers to open their APIs, but so far, minimal progress. What about the rest of medical technology? Why has it failed to be game-changing? Jeremy, manufacturers aren't the only barrier to widespread tech adoption in healthcare. Physician resistance also contributes. To understand why, let's go back two centuries. Doctors had few tools at the time to diagnose and treat patients. They took great pride in their ability to assess a patient's temperature using only their hands. The best physicians, they could be accurate to within a half degree. This skill took years of training to master and it boosted the prestige of the entire profession. Around that time, Daniel Fahrenheit invented a new device called the thermometer. It could measure body temperature within a tenth of a degree. And you would think that every physician would clamor to obtain one, but the opposite occurred. Doctors refused to accept that something made of metal and mercury could replace their hands as the best means to assess a patient's temperature. Despite this new medical technology objectively being five times more accurate, as a result, it would be over a hundred years before the thermometer became a standard part of the doctor's armamentarium. As we discussed in the show last time, when physicians act seemingly illogically, there's always a reason, and it's usually an unwritten rule, even if it's not one that's particularly good for patients. In this case, doctors saw the thermometer as a threat to their professional status and relative importance. If just anyone could accurately determine a patient's temperature without years of hands-on training, then physicians would lose a big part of what makes them special. This seemingly irrational rationale wasn't conscious. It was part of the unwritten rules of medicine any technology that lowers a physician's status can't be very good. But technology that elevates the doctor's status, that's likely to be excellent. How do these unwritten rules on technology play out today? Jeremy, despite massive advances in medical knowledge and clinical practice, when it comes to technology, these unwritten rules from the last century persist and they get in the way of optimal medical care. Consider the industry-wide obsession with surgical robots. These multi-million dollar machines are the epitome of video games, with the patient asleep on the operative table, the doctor sits in a space-age command center and controls multiple robotic arms. It's easy to see the appeal. This technology, it's incredibly cool. And the surgeons who use them, they are seen by doctors and patients alike as rock stars on the cutting edge of medical science. Medical journals overflow with descriptions of new and interesting applications for these technologies. It's therefore no surprise that the surgical robotics market is projected to grow by 42% annually 
over the next decade. But here's the problem. Independent research from 39 clinical studies has determined that robot-assisted surgeries have minimal clinical advantages over other approaches. And despite surgeons from a variety of specialties searching for ever more applications for the operative robot, the technology hasn't been shown to extend life expectancy or significantly reduce surgical complications when it is compared to traditional approaches. And in using a surgical robot, it takes longer and it costs far more. From the perspective of the doctor's esteem and the physician's position in the medical hierarchy, this technology, it's remarkable. But from the perspective of improving clinical outcomes for patients, it is unimpressive. I understand why this outdated, unwritten rule encourages the use of technology that doesn't add value. Can you talk about the other end of the spectrum? Can you give examples of technologies that would benefit patients for which this unwritten rule still stands in the way? The first example that comes to mind in the context of COVID-19 is telemedicine. Prior to the pandemic, only one in 10 patients had experienced a virtual visit with a doctor. That changed at the onset of the pandemic when physicians' offices were forced to close due to fear of viral transmission. Suddenly telehealth accounted for 60 and 70% of all visits. And to the surprise of doctors and patients alike, the experience was resoundingly positive. Physicians resolve patient problems faster and more effectively than before. And satisfaction surveys show that patients were even more pleased when they received virtual medical care than when they saw the same physician in person. Yet in the months that followed, telemedicine usage receded to almost pre-pandemic levels, accounting now for just over 10% of patients if you don't include mental health services. Seven years ago, I published a paper in Health Affairs. It's the leading medical policy journal. And I predicted that telemedicine would replace 30 to 40% of in-person visits. What I had not realized at the time was the power of this unwritten rule to impact physician enthusiasm. Jeremy, the problem isn't the technology itself. Video is well-established and the cost of making it available for patients is minimal. It's what the technology represents. Telehealth constitutes a threat to the physician's office. A place where the doctor's prestige is on full display. Doctors take great pride in seeing their names on the front door, embossed in bold letters. They like that all the employees in the office accord them high esteem. And even the words waiting room communicate the importance of the doctor's time. Telemedicine doesn't include any of these status symbols. It makes the physician feel a little like a commodity rather than uniquely important. As a result, what we're seeing now is that even when a consult or follow-up visit can be done virtually with greater convenience for the patient, doctors continue to preferentially schedule an in-person visit. I'll be publishing an article in the Harvard Business Review next month on the range of opportunities telemedicine creates. They're far more than just substituting a video visit 
for an office one. Video can make unique specialist expertise available from afar. It can allow a team of doctors to provide 24 by seven access, reducing unnecessarily ER use. And it can convert medical care from episodic to continuous for patients with chronic diseases. But even though telemedicine can provide higher quality, increased convenience and lower costs, you'll find a scant number of journal articles which clinicians are attempting to push the boundaries of telehealth today. Can you expand on what you mean by converting medical care from episodic to continuous? As you know, Jeremy, chronic diseases have become the largest contributor to major medical problems, premature deaths, and a growing unaffordability crisis. Today, diabetes and hypertension are the number one and number two contributors to heart disease, kidney failure, and strokes. And yet as a nation, we do a terrible job of prevention, medical management, and avoidance of complications. More than a third of patients with high blood pressure fail to have that problem well-controlled. As obesity becomes ever more prevalent, the number of people with adult-onset diabetes and pre-diabetes is expanding. The current medical model is failing for a variety of reasons, including societal factors and patient behavior. But it's also falling short due to how medical care is delivered in the United States. In general, doctors use a calendar approach and see patients with chronic diseases on an episodic basis, once every three or four months. But when patients have hypertension or diabetes, their medical status changes continually. They may need care one week after they leave the doctor's office or not for an entire year. What's required is more frequent monitoring with short visits to evaluate people's health status and make changes in their medications. But that can't be done easily using the traditional office model. It would simply be too time intensive for both doctors and patients. Telemedicine resolves the challenge for both. What's another example of a powerful technology that is underutilized? A second underutilized technology is the combination of AI and data analytics. Together, they can increase quality, improve access and lower costs in medicine as they have accomplished in other industries, such as manufacturing, transportation, and retail. Applied effectively, they successfully reduce inefficiencies and take out waste. And even more importantly, the opportunities in the future are far greater as computers become faster and more powerful. Jeremy, you have a major background in technology. And as you know, computing speeds and computing power continue to double every couple of years. It's the phenomenon that we call Moore's Law. And that means that whatever exists today, it's going to be 30 times more powerful and quicker and faster and easier a decade from now. COVID-19 demonstrates how poorly our minds understand the rapidity of exponential growth. Early in the pandemic on our Coronavirus The Truth podcast, I posed the following question. 
If the plant's living on a lily pond, double in number each day, and it takes 50 days to fully cover the pond, what percentage of the pond will be covered on day 40? Most listeners estimated somewhere between 30 and 50%. The actual number, it's a 10th of 1%. We're simply one thousandth of the service. That same magnitude of change happens in computing speed and power. Physicians need to stay ahead of that exponential curve. And today they are not. You know, already AI has been shown to interpret X-ray studies, such as mammograms for breast cancer and chest X-rays for pneumonia more accurately than skilled radiologists. And the gap between machines and people that's going to expand in the future. Our brains aren't going to be much different 10 years from now, while, as we said, computers are likely to improve 30-fold. Meanwhile, data analytics and computer-driven algorithms have the power to dramatically improve physician performance. We know that when doctors consistently follow science-based guidelines, they achieve far better clinical outcomes than on their own. And if all physicians match the performance of the 10% best today, our nation could decrease deaths from heart attacks, stroke, and cancer, saving tens of thousands of lives each year. But as with the thermometer of centuries before, physicians aren't clamoring for these current 21st century tools. Instead, like the predecessors, you'll hear them deriding these new opportunities Doctors from every specialty denouncing the use of computerized checklists and algorithmic solutions as cookbook medicine. Just some recipe to be followed. They argue that data analytics and AI will make every doctor average, but they ignore the fact that the new average would be vastly better than what exists today. One reason for their resistance relates to status. The image of a doctor Taking directions from a computer implies the physician isn't particularly skilled. And the reality that other clinicians could use these same tools to achieve equal or better outcomes than doctors do, that risks reducing the prestige of the physician. It's clear that what manufacturers provide to doctors and what physicians value in new technology doesn't always align with what is best for patients. How might our nation address this problem? Jeremy, there are many economic and cultural changes that will be needed. To address both the economics and the culture, increased transparency has to be a first step. If insurers, purchasers, and patients don't have independent analysis of how effective a particular technology is, they can't make judgments about using or paying for it. And if physicians aren't forced to confront the true value of each, they'll continue to follow the outdated written, unwritten rule left over from the past. There are multiple government agencies that could do this type of analysis, such as the National Institute of Health. The NIH has the scientists and medical knowledge, and they can access the technology needed for an impartial objective examination. And it could publish the results in easy to understand charts and graphs, similar to what, compute, what Consumer Reports does for retail products. Though the scientific body wouldn't have regulatory power, the way the FDA has authority over drug approvals, it would nevertheless serve an important function. 
And hopefully, over time, what physicians valued, what physicians and what insurers paid for would evolve for the benefit of patients. Let's move now to the role of primary care. It's clear the powerful role that technology can play in healthcare, but why do you say that primary care can be equally as powerful? Jeremy, the data on the impact primary care has on the health of people is clear. A recent study from Stanford and Harvard demonstrated that adding 10 primary care physicians to a community extended life expectancy two and a half times more than adding 10 specialists. There are multiple reasons why American life expectancy has failed to increase over the past 20 years. But a major one is our country's failure to train enough primary care doctors, reimburse them adequately, and value their contributions sufficiently. Among the 12 most industrialized nations in the world, the United States ranks last in ease of access to primary care. In most professions, the pecking order of where people stand is clear, even when there's no formal designation. You're a major football fan. I suspect you'll agree that although there's nothing in the rule book that grants status or authority to certain players, the starting quarterback is the most valuable person on the field. And if I asked you why, you tell me that the quarterback is the position with the greatest impact on whether a team wins a championship. I believe that in medicine, saving lives is the equivalent of winning championships. And given that we just discussed the two and a half times greater impact primary care has on life expectancy, you might assume that primary care would be at the top of the medical hierarchy, but it's not. In fact, today is closer to the bottom. And the reason for this is another outdated rule, this time on doctor value. Rather than status reflecting the physicians that save the most lives, the relative rank of specialties is decided by who does the seemingly impossible. And today, these are the specialists. They're the ones who both physicians and patients accord the highest status and the ones that insurers therefore pay the most for their time. Primary care doctors weren't always low on the medical hierarchy. For the most of the 20th century, primary care physicians, who at the time were mainly internal medicine doctors, were held in the highest esteem. The superpower that set them apart from their colleagues was their ability to unravel the most complex and difficult medical mysteries. At the time when cardiologists and pulmonologists and orthopedists couldn't diagnose an ailment, they turned to primary care for expertise. Time and again, these brilliant diagnosticians did the seemingly impossible, and in doing so, held their position atop medicine's hierarchy. But all this changed toward the end of the 20th century with the introduction of more modern technology. MRI, CT scanners, and more sophisticated ultrasounds made difficult diagnoses less elusive. 
and advances in technology allowed surgeons and interventional subspecialists to safely do what was once thought impossible. Orthopedists, whose 20th century job was to reset and cast broken bones, could suddenly replace hip and knee joints with space age implants. Ophthalmologists who historically wrote prescriptions for eyeglasses now could use ultrasonic machines and insert artificial lenses to restore the vision of patients with cataracts. And incredibly, interventional cardiologists could now pass catheters through blood vessels into the heart and reverse myocardial infarctions as they were happening by unblocking the occluded coronary arteries. These unbelievable advancements flipped the healthcare hierarchy on its head. Specialists were now seen as heroes capable of impossible feats, while primary care physicians were demoted. Part of why specialists earn two to three times more than primary care physicians is the added length of training. But of equal importance is the difference in status. Doctors in primary care aren't given reduced respect because of lower pay. They're reimbursed less for their time due to their diminished status. You mentioned technology relative to chronic diseases. How does primary care fit into that picture? Jeremy, I appreciate you pointing out this opportunity. Chronic diseases account for seven in 10 American deaths, and they've caused the relative flatlining of life expectancy over the past two decades that we mentioned earlier. This deadly healthcare crisis won't be solved with ever more complex surgeries and procedures. The incidence of chronic disease is growing too rapidly and the costs for treating the complications are becoming prohibitive. Instead, the problem can be best addressed by primary care doctors using technology to consistently achieve the best outcomes. But until we elevate the status of primary care and make the investments needed in their income and practice, the challenges from chronic diseases will only become worse and the health of the nation will remain stagnant. How do you recommend we do this? When a problem in healthcare is as big as this one, there isn't a single simple solution. But here are two steps along the path. Ones we will have to take simultaneously to break the current lack of progress. One step is to increase funding for primary care physician practices. Our nation currently spends about 6% of total healthcare dollars on primary care. I'd suggest we increase that to 9%. The added revenue would allow primary care physicians to spend more time with each patient by having to see fewer people per day. It would also allow the doctor to hire additional staff to assist with the medical care of patients who have chronic diseases. Although the magnitude of this increase compared to what's currently being spent might seem high, as a percentage of total healthcare costs, a 3% increase is relatively low. And by preventing chronic diseases and avoiding their complications, the return on the investment would be huge, more than offsetting the added payments. The challenge is that before insurers and payers will agree to make this added investment, they will want to be confident the money will be used appropriately and effectively. That's the reason there's need for a second 
simultaneous step. We know that there's a huge variation between doctors and how effectively they help patients to avoid and manage the chronic diseases. Data show that some US physicians are 30% more effective at preventing deaths from stroke, heart attack, or cancer than others. You might think it'd be easy to provide incentives to physicians and measure outcomes, but in practice, it's not straightforward. In fact, nearly all past attempts at this, usually done through a pay-for-performance incentive program, have failed to lower mortality rates. The reason these financial incentives don't work is that to cover all of the medical problems that a primary care physician takes care of, a program where we need dozens and dozens of measures. But that's not how primary care physicians approach patient care. And so they take care of the whole patient. Insurers and payers haven't found a way to measure, judge, and incentivize the totality of what a doctor does. But artificial intelligence can help with that. If the goal of medicine is saving lives, then that should be the measure of success. An AI application would first analyze tens of thousands of medical journals to identify the approaches that most effectively and successfully increase life expectancy. It would then compare the performance of each primary care physician against these opportunities, weighing those actions that most extend life based upon this published data. Instead of rewarding doctors for testing for high blood pressure or enrolling patients in diabetes management programs, as most pay for performance approaches do, physicians would be rewarded the most when the patient's blood pressure and blood sugar actually return to normal. And with more data, the AI application would improve and better identify what doctors can do to minimize chronic diseases and extend life expectancy. And this would lead to ever more insurers and self-funded businesses joining in. Over time, by focusing healthcare policy and payment on maximizing health and saving lives, the esteem accorded to these hardworking physicians would grow. And that would convert what currently is a vicious cycle of underfunding, leading to underperformance, leading to even less funding, to a virtuous cycle of increased funding, leading to even better performance, progressively higher respect and esteem. Most importantly, it would end the United States' stagnation and longevity and offer the potential to make American healthcare once again the best in the world. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is now a weekly podcast released each Sunday night, rotating our today's show, Diving Deep, followed by Coronavirus the Truth, then breaking the rules of healthcare with a different guest each week, and finally unfiltered with Zubin Demanya, aka ZDog MD, joining Robbie and me. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.